0: So I um, debated whether I should talk about this because, um, you know, the boys are getting old enough to th- where they can kind of understand when I talk about them. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, the, the younger one over there, he, uh, he's really, like, stubborn. So when we want him to do things, he doesn't always, like, listen to us. And uh, oftentimes, like, he's very strong-willed, you know. The older one is not so strong-willed. He is very compliant, you know. If we say, hey, do this or do that, like, he does it. If we say, hey, you know, you're going to get in trouble, he actually gets scared. The younger one, though, will be like, you know, he'll do something wrong. And he won't listen, let's say, for example. And I'll say, okay, you know, you did this wrong. Um, are you gonna listen next time? You know, are you gonna listen? And all I want him to say is yes, right? I just want him to say, you know, yeah, and he understands, you know, I just want him to say, okay, right? And I'm like, okay, so next time are you gonna listen to dad, basically? Are you gonna listen to dad next time? And he's like, no, right? It's like, okay. Okay, we'll go, go do time out then, right? So we put him in time out. He cries. He gets upset. And then he comes back. After, like, a couple minutes, he comes back. And you're thinking, okay. Like, so now he's going to, he understands. He got in trouble. Comes back. He's, he's like, upset. I'm like, okay, so you're going to listen to Dad next time, right? And he's like, no. Straight up, no. Like, what the, you know, <laughs> what's going on? Okay, we'll do time out again. He'll do that, like, like five or six times in a row. Like just straight up, he'll come back. And it's like, you're thinking, does he understand? Like does he know what's going on? He does. Because finally at the end, he'll finally break down and he'll be like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll listen next time. So he's like, he's understood the whole time. But he's just got this, you know, this will, right? This stubborn will where he just doesn't want to comply. You know, he doesn't, he's, he doesn't want to just, Agree. Now I get that. And I was actually thinking about it. I don't know why he came to my mind when I was thinking about this. You know, the message today is entitled uh, Stubborn Joy. Stubborn Joy. Because I thought, what if he had that same personality, but it was not applied to resisting, you know, like a command or like being disobedient, but it applied to his joy. Like, what if I was trying to make him upset, but he just refused to be upset? You know, or I was trying to make him scared or something, but he just refused to be scared. He just had, he was just, he just had joy. Like, I was trying to make him sad, and he refused to be sad. And instead, he just, he just resisted. It was like, no, I'm going to have this, I'm going to be joyous, I'm going to be joy-filled. Because that's the kind of joy that Paul has. You know, uh, we're in a series in the book of Philippians, and joy actually is one of the main themes of the book of Philippians. In fact, we did a message on joy just a couple weeks ago where we talked about kind of what Paul goes to to find his joy. We talked about gospel remembrance and gospel partnership and gospel growth in us. And how when we see those things and we focus on those things, we can have joy And today what we're going to talk about is not just in a a vacuum or, you know, just when things are kind of neutral how to have joy, but how do you have joy, like, that resists even in difficult times, even when there are struggles and even when there are trials and even when things just aren't going your way. Not a weak joy that is good when things are good. But how do you have a a persistent, a resilient, a stubborn joy that persists, that's there, that endures even when things are bad, even when things are tough? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you guys have your Bibles, um, let's go ahead and look at uh, Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. And again, we don't, for those of you here, we don't have a screen, so... Need to crack open that. Um, well, it's not crack open. It's, most of you guys are on your phones, but you know, open, turn open your Bible app <laughs> and um, Philippians uh, chapter one. We're going to start in verse twelve here. Philippians chapter one, verse twelve. We're going to read all the way through verse twenty-one, and this is God's word, and it says, uh, "I want you to know, brothers." That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, it's clear that, well, what is Paul's situation? Okay, Paul is writing this letter, as we've said, from prison. He's under house arrest. He's on lockdown. You know, he's chained to a guard. He's awaiting trial in Rome. And this is happening not because Paul's done anything wrong. You know, he hasn't really committed any crime. He just fervently declares the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has caused people to not like him and to cause trouble for him. And so that's, you know, why he's imprisoned. Now, when you see Paul, the way he responds to this, what is his response to this set of circumstances? The fact that he has essentially been unjustly imprisoned. First of all, he doesn't complain. right? There's no, like, why me in Paul. right? He doesn't write this letter and be like, oh, why me? I've been unjustly imprisoned. All I'm doing is preaching the gospel of Jesus, and yet I ended up in prison. He doesn't say that. Secondly, he doesn't even ask for help. Right. So he doesn't ask or at least not help getting out of prison. Right. He doesn't say, hey, get me like the best lawyer, you know, d- like figure out, try to appeal my case, get me out of here. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He doesn't even want to change his situation. Thirdly, he doesn't even lament that he's imprisoned. He's not like, ah oh, man, it's just, it sucks. You know, I'm in prison because of the gospel, and this is just this just sucks. I'm sad. He doesn't even do that, right? In fact, what you see in the passage is he rejoices that he's imprisoned for the gospel. He's like, dude, this is awesome, right? Because I get to preach to like this whole imperial guard now. Like everybody is, you know, he doesn't think of it as I'm stuck here. He's thinking these people are stuck with me. They have to listen to me, preach the gospel to them. Secondly, he's happy because people are being like other people, other Christians, what he says in the text is they are being emboldened by his imprisonment. So the fact that he's gone to prison is making other people feel like, "Oh, you know, they're being they're being filled with confidence." They're like, "Oh, wow, we can go and we can preach the gospel too. Paul's willing to go to prison and and he's he's fine with it. Like he's okay." And thirdly, <laughs> The way he responds is some people are out there and they don't like Paul, right? They're kind of jealous of Paul and his ministry. So when he goes to prison, they're thinking, this is my chance to, like, step up. This is my chance to, like, make a name for myself as a preacher. So these are people in ministry, other, at least they call themselves Christians, and they're saying, oh, we can kind of take the place of Paul. He says they're preaching, you know, uh, some do it out of goodwill, but he's saying some do it out of envy and rivalry. That's their motivation. And even when that happens, Paul is just kind of like, yeah, what, what, Like whatever, <laughs> I don't really care. As long as the gospel is being preached, I mean, I don't even care about what their motivations are. It's clear that Paul has this kind of stubborn joy, Right? Like the, the factors that contribute to his joy are generally generally different than ours. He doesn't consider his own comfort. He doesn't even consider his own freedom. He doesn't consider his plans. He doesn't consider his quote unquote success. He doesn't consider things like who likes him or what other people think of him or how much obviously like how much money he's making. Stuff like that. he doesn't really think about that kind of stuff. Those factors are not what contribute to his joy. Now, real quick, before we look at what are the factors that contribute to his joy, I just want to clarify: the takeaway shouldn't be um, have joy even when circumstances are difficult. Like force yourself to be joyful even when things are hard. That's not the that's not the point, right? Uh, when we you know when we do that, we're kind of getting things out of order. The point is, the point that we see in Paul, though, is this, that there is a powerful, resilient, stubborn joy that even the most challenging of circumstances cannot take away from us. So the point is that that kind of joy exists, that there is such a joy that will persist even when things aren't going your way, even when all the plans go wrong. Even when you end up unjustly persecuted. Even when all you're trying to do is the right thing, and then you end up getting in trouble for it. Even when other people, for no, re- for no fault of your own, are like, I don't know, talking trash about you. Like, that's basically what's happening to Paul here. Even when there's that kind of rivalry and envy and backbiting. Even when that's happening, you know, like with your friends or at work or something like that. Still, there is this powerful joy, this resilient joy, this stubborn joy that Paul has clearly tapped into. Because imagine if you're like, if you're somebody who's trying to make Paul mad, like if you're trying to make Paul upset, like how frustrating is that, right? You go up to Paul and you're like, all right, we're going to throw you in prison. He's like, awesome. I get to preach to all the prisoners and all the guards, like, okay, that's, that's annoying, right? Like, we're going we're gonna to kill you then. He's like, sweet, right? Like, I get to be with Jesus, my Lord. It's like, you know, if, like, if you're the like, interrogator, you're just, like, frustrated, right? We're going we're gonna to torture you, right? And Paul, in other, in, in Philippians 3, he says, awesome, <laughs> right? I, we're going to enjoy the, uh, I'm going to enjoy the fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, like, you cannot take away Paul's joy. It's a joy so secure and so stubborn that even when something or something tries to sink it, it just won't go down. That's the kind of joy that Paul has. Now, how, okay, so what, what is he looking to? What are the factors that contribute to that joy? And by the way, I was going to say at the beginning to, like, feel free to reposition yourself because the sun's kind of moving. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we can't, yeah. It was, like, totally in a different place when we set up than where it is now. So, um, but yeah, what are, what are these things? Like, what does Paul look at? Okay, so three things. Uh, one, and I'll, I'll just kind of phrase it for us. What can we do? How can we have this kind of stubborn joy? Uh, find success in gospel advancement right like consider and i should probably phrase that like consider gospel advancement as success because that's the that's the factor that Paul considers right like when he's in prison and where we might think that's bad because it's limiting my comfort, it's limiting my freedom, it's limiting, you know, all kinds of things in my life. I had plans, now these plans are ruined. You know, I wanted to do this and now it's, it's ruined. For Paul, all he thinks about is, is the gospel going to move forward by me being in this circumstance? And he says, three reasons, yes it is. One, I get to preach to all the guards Two, other Christians are going to be motivated to preach the gospel more because I'm here. And three, even the false preachers of the gospel, they're going to preach the gospel. I mean, not false preachers, but people who might not have the right motives. Even they're going to preach the gospel. And he's like, I don't care as long as the, the gospel is preached. Like if I, I, I thought about like if Paul had a social media. You know, first I thought, like, if, you know, if Paul were here today, would he have social media? And I thought, yeah, he probably would, right? Because he wants to be all things to all men so that he can save some. So he probably would have social media. And he'd probably be one of those people on, like, Facebook or, you know, Instagram or whatever, where it's kind of like we almost get a little annoyed at people like Paul, where he'd just constantly be posting stuff about Jesus. Like every, I mean, obviously, you know, like, Good Friday, Easter, Chris. Obviously, he's going to post about Jesus on those days, right? But I mean, you know, every every day, like Labor Day. It's like, thank God for the work of Christ. Like, you know, he's going to still be posting stuff. Like, Arbor Day, you know, Jesus was hanged on a tree. Like, he's just always going to be about Jesus. Everything, he's going to find a way to, like, connect it back to National Sibling Day, right? My brothers and sisters at Philippi, you know, whatever. Like, he's going to find a way to make it about Jesus to bring it back to the gospel so that the gospel will move forward regardless of the circumstance. And because of that, he has this joy that can't be stopped. It's, it's stubborn. won't go down. Now, two things have to accompany that, considering gospel advance success. Okay, here's the second thing. Rest Rest in God's approval. Rest in God's approval. So if you look back in verse 18, right? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So we see he's just rejoicing in that gospel advancement, right? And he, he continues, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's saying uh, this will turn out. I know that because of their prayers and because of Jesus, this is going to turn out for his deliverance. Now, when he says that, what does he mean? Is he talking about deliverance from prison or is he talking about something else? Now, he's actually quoting from uh, Job 13 16 to 18, the Greek construction is exactly the same here as that passage. And Job says in in that, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it real quick. Job 13, 16, he says, This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. So Job is actually talking about himself being vindicated. Like that God is before God. God's going to be his salvation. So it seems like what Paul's talking about is not prison. He's not talking about getting out of prison. This is going to be my deliverance from prison. He's saying this is going to be my deliverance like in the end. Like in the end when I stand before God, I'm going to be vindicated because I stood for God. Because I lived for the gospel and all my accusers, like the people who were against God essentially... Like, before them, I'm going to be proved in the right. Not because Paul's righteous, but because he trusts in Christ. He's saying, I won't be ashamed by the rivalry or insincerity or affliction of these, you know, these accusers. These people who are against Paul. So how does Paul, then, maintain that joy even in the face of rivalry and envy. Well, rather than focusing on the approval of those people, whatever people are around him, whether the people don't like him, whether the people do like him, Paul doesn't, he doesn't think about that. He doesn't care about that. He's like, I'm just thinking about what God thinks about me. That's how I live my life. I know that in Christ, and this also speaks to the power of prayer because he says, because of your prayers, I'm going to end up vindicated. I'm going to end up saved. So following Paul, right, we should rest in the approval of God and not in the approval of people. Man, this is, (laughs) I didn't realize, it's going to be harder without a screen. But (laughs) I was was looking this up. These are, these are uh, I, I found this in an article in Psychology Today, but it's uh, Eight Signs You're a People Pleaser. Okay, so I, I'll just read these. It says, uh, you pretend to agree with people even when you don't agree. Uh, you feel responsible for how other people feel. You feel burdened by the things you have to do. You feel uncomfortable if someone, if someone is angry at you. You act like the people around you. You need praise from people to feel good. You go to great lengths to avoid conflict, and you don't admit when your feelings are hurt. <laughs> don't, don't look at each other, guys. Come on. that's no. <laughs> um, so yeah, there may be some things on that list. You may, you may think, oh, I, I can relate to that. I know what that's like. Uh, and living life as a as a people pleaser, if that's kind of your general, if that is your fundamental like framework, if you want people to be pleased with you, and you want the approval of people, and that's the way that that's where you find your rest, that's what makes you feel good. That's exhausting. Right? Like, that's very tiring. Like one thing here, like you feel burdened by the things you have to do. Do, do, do we feel that like a general sense of, wow, I get to do everything that I do. I get to do my job. I get to, you know, be in my family. I get to have these friends. I get to, you know, serve in this way. I get to do this or that. Or is it like I have to. Oh, I have to do my job. You know, I have to do this. I have to do that. I have this thing coming up that I have to do. Paul is not a people pleaser. He says this in Galatians 1.10. am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is free not to seek to please people. Free to seek to please only God. He's like, I'm living for God's, not uh, not salvific approval, right? Because that's accomplished in Jesus. In fact, the fact that Paul really knows and believes that God loves me regardless because of Christ is what frees him from having to feel like he has to prove himself constantly. Do you ever, um, so I have, you know, some debt, right, because of, stinking Talbot, <laughs> you know, and, um, it's like whenever my account goes up, like my bank account, so I have Mint, I don't know, you guys know what Mint is, it's just like, a manages all your, like your budget, right, so I go on there, and all my accounts are on there, so I tap myself in the teeth just then, <laughs> did you guys see that, that hurt, <laughs> with the mic, it's like, distracted me, so, um, if you go on Mint, right, so all your accounts are on there. and stuff. So all your debt is there, and all your, like, you know, your, your credit cards and your bank accounts, like, everything's there. So when I look at, like, whenever I look at my, like, Bank of America account, right, there's, like, so much money. And I'm always like, oh, cool, you know, there's, like, there's this much money. And, you know, if it goes up, then I feel better, right? It's like I feel more secure or whatever, or I feel more, I just, I don't know. There's some... It's, it's just, I don't know, when you have money in your account, you just feel better, right? So I, that's how I feel. But then I, when I go on Mint, it calculates everything, and it has all your debt, too, right? And then it shows, like, your net worth, right? And our net worth is, like, it's negative, you know, because we have more overall debt, right, than we have, like, money. So then when I, whenever I go on Mint, I'm like, oh, gosh, it's, like, stupid. You know, so whenever I look at just the account, I'm, like, happy. But then when I go on Mint, I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, sad because there's still all this debt. And that's, I don't know if we recognize, I don't know if we realize, like, the effect of that debt. You know, because when we are not resting in Jesus, when we're not resting in God, we always feel the effect of that debt. Even if you do something positive, you know, even if something good is happening, like, you feel the effect of this infinite negative always there. It's always pulling down all of the positive. It's always pulling down everything that's good. That, in, that infinite negative, right? That infinite sin that hasn't been paid for just exists there. But when you rest in Christ, when it's like, you know what? It's not what I've done. It's what Christ has done. I haven't earned it. I don't deserve it. But God is good and God is gracious and he freely gives. He just freely has forgiven me because of the work of Christ. Then that's, that's what Paul, that is what Paul operates out of. He rests in God's approval. So he doesn't need to pretend to agree with people. In fact, he disagrees a lot. He's free to disagree. He doesn't feel responsible for how people feel about what he says. He just speaks the truth. He is unburdened. He's unburdened by what happens to him or what he does. Even when he's in prison. Even when when he can't go somewhere. He's like, I'm constrained by the spirit. I can only do this or that like what God tells me. But that's not a burden to him. That's not bad to him. He doesn't try to act like the people around him. He tries to act like Jesus. He doesn't need praise from people to feel good. He doesn't need to avoid conflict. He has no problem admitting his own weaknesses. In fact, he calls, he's like, I'm the chief of sin, I'm the worst sinner. When our hearts are set to God's approval, we are free, essentially, from everyone else. In Christ, he knows he's loved and forgiven. It's completely unearned. It's free grace that leads him to be free to follow Jesus. Set your joy to God's approval. Set your heart to God's approval. Set your rest in God's approval. Here's the final thing. Uh, set your heart on the glory of Jesus. On the glory of Jesus. I'm only gonna touch on this briefly because we'll actually go through Philippians one twenty one is kind of Paul's main thing. It's it's a title of our series, right? But um, well, starting in verse uh, twenty, it says, "As as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ash- that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death." So he's saying, "Whether I live or whether I die, Jesus is going to be honored in me." And then he says, "For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." He he expounds on that in the following verses but I just want to touch on it today. Paul can, can essentially define his entire life to just say, you know Jesus like what is Paul what is your life about Paul? you know if you were doing an interview and they say, what's your life about?" he's basically just say it's about Jesus period like my life is Jesus. We need to learn that. That, that, that life is Jesus. This is a, a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. The enjoyment of him is essentially our purpose and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Think about that. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. It's infinitely better than staying at the nicest hotel And, you know, having the finest food and, you know, going to the most exotic location, the most picturesque place, having the best car and the best house and the best everything, the best everything. Having the best everything on earth to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than that. There is no way to measure how much better it is than the best of this world And he goes on in his quote, better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Do you enjoy God like that? I'll give you... Um, like, like we, should, we should step into our time with God like that. And sometimes, I mean, do you need a special... You know, do you need to go through a special class for this? Like, do you, how, do you, how do you enter into time with God? whether that's like here in this kind of setting where you're entering into this corporate worship and you're sitting under some, some biblical teaching or you're listening to a sermon online or you are spending time in the word alone or you are in prayer. How do you do that? How do you enjoy God like that? Well, I'll just, I, I don't think it's rocket science Um, But I will ask you, like, how do you appreciate a work of art? How do you appreciate a work of art? Like, how do you you enjoy it? How do you appreciate a movie or a painting? I mean, you just do, right? (laughs) Because when you go to a movie, it's like somebody doesn't need to teach you how to watch a movie. Right? Like, because you go for the purpose of enjoyment. Right? Now... I would say simply approach your time with Christ in the same manner, you know, as though it exists for the purpose of enjoyment. Couple, you know, here are just a couple applications. I think how how we can do that. Um, first thing is just do not treat your time with Jesus as purely obligatory. Right. So don't enter into time with Christ, whether that's like in the word or in prayer or even in this kind of setting, as if it is purely a job, a duty. You know, you're doing it to like because you have to or because you're supposed to. Um, Like and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that like if you enter into time with God and your your mind is not like in the perfect mindset, then you're not going to get anything out of it. Like I'm not saying that. Because God is gracious. You know, we said this, I think, a couple weeks ago. He is faithful. Even when we give him, you know, when we exercise faith, even in the smallest way, he is faithful to allow that to bear fruit, to allow it to be meaningful to us. But what I will say is there is a lot of enjoyment of God that we leave on the table when we step into our time with Christ only as a matter of duty. Right? Like, if we're doing it, You know, and of course, all the enjoyments being left on the table if we're not spending any time with God. But if we're stepping into it just as, like, if I went to a museum, you know, some amazing museum. I actually went to the Hermitage when I was in, like, when I was in college. Totally, what a wasted experience because I didn't appreciate it at all. It's, like, one of the greatest, you know, in Russia, like, the Winter Palace. It's amazing, right? But I was just like, oh, whatever. So I just, like, walked through, barely looked at anything, you know, and then we just, like, left. Um... And yeah, basically if you do that, you know, if you go to a museum and you just run through it and you barely look at the pink, you know, you barely look at the the stuff, the art, right? Or you're watching a movie and you're like texting the whole time, are you really gonna fully enjoy that? Are you gonna take that in and be like, oh, this is this is amazing? No, I mean, of course not. It's just gonna be like whatever to you. You're gonna just kind of zombie through it. You know, and sometimes, like if we're in the word or we're in worship, and we're basically counting the seconds, you know, till it's over, or we're just like getting, we just want to get to the next chapter so we can like check the box. It's like, oh, yes, I did it. I mean, you are leaving much enjoyment on the table. There is much enjoyment there. There is much beauty and appreciation there that's being left on the, the table. There is much enjoyment that you are keeping yourself from having. You are denying yourself. The glory and the power. That's the first thing I'd say. Do not treat your time with Christ as purely obligatory. Here's the second thing I'd say. Uh, Do not treat Jesus as purely instrumental. Sometimes we see Jesus primarily as a means to something else to achieving in life, to feeling loved and appreciated, to having a better family, to having a community, to justice, to achievement, you know, to like he's a means to an end. He will get us somewhere. But Jesus doesn't work like that. Like, he doesn't work like that, and if you do that, he doesn't work. It doesn't work. Jesus is not a stepping stone. He's not a tool. He's the the maker. To live is Christ. To live is not to be comfortable. To live is not to be right. To live is not to have community. To live is not to discover yourself. To live is Christ. If you truly know Christ, then you know this. You know to live is Christ to fundamentally define life in any other way is not only insulting to Christ, but it will be catastrophic for your joy and your good. But if you preach to your own heart, right, like heart. I do this sometimes, even though it sounds ridiculous. But, you know, I talk, like, speak to your, like, heart, To live is Christ. Then the enjoyment I have in my family is the shadow and God is the substance. Like community is the scattered beam and God is the sun. Work is a drop and God is the ocean. Church, the shadow is nothing without the substance. Why try to capture the light of a scattered beam when you can step into the sun? Why drink one droplet at a time when you can drink from the fountain? Paul's joy is set on the gospel because he loves the gospel. He loves the gospel. He wants to see the gospel advance. That is success to him. The approval that he has in Christ because of the gospel. That is rest to him. And the glory of Jesus. That is beauty and glory and joy to him. That's that's his life. Jesus came to flip everything we know in its head, lived a perfect life because we couldn't. He lived it for us. He died for us so that we could live he rose again so that we could be free to die and yet live. Let us, like Paul, set our hearts to that same gospel. As we commit to Christ being preached and resting in his approval and enjoying his glory. Let's pray together. God, we uh, thank you so much that... You allow us to have not a simple joy or a weak joy, one that is easily knocked over, one that changes frequently based on the circumstances we find ourselves in or the state of the world. God, you delight to give us a, a powerful joy, a joy with Strong foundations, God, a resilient joy, a stubborn joy that does not fall over at the first sign of trouble. That rejoices no matter what is happening around us as long as the gospel is going forward. God, that rejoices regardless of what anybody says or thinks about us in the fact that we can rest in your approval. That rejoices regardless of whatever else we have or can see in the fact that we can see you, Jesus. And you are glorious. You are beautiful. You are amazing. We pray that you would open our hearts up, open the eyes of our hearts, God, to see that, to persistently fight for that, and to have joy as we do so. We entrust it to you, God. We thank you so much and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.